Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the place that celebrates gorgeous human connection. Today I'm chatting to Jay Shetty. Love is this beautiful balance between chaos and comfort or chaos and care. And so it's not that you won't break these rules and you have to follow them perfectly or anything like that. But if you don't have any at all, if you have no parameters, you're basically just shooting in the dark. And that is a recipe for risk, uh, hope, wishing, wanting, waiting. And I don't think anyone out there saying, Jay, I'm happy to just wish, want and wait. I think everyone wants to create, build and grow love. And in order to create, build and grow, it has to be intentional. What if there was method to the magic? A former monk, Jay is now a best-selling author, the award-winning host of the podcast On Purpose and Chief Purpose Officer at Calm. Something he wants us all to think about doing on purpose is loving. His new book is called Eight Rules of Love, which could sound a bit dogmatic, but it's about understanding that finding love and keeping it has to be intentional. It's very interesting, isn't it? Nobody sits us down and teaches us how to love. We just sort of pick up messaging along the way from the way others show us love from the way it's presented to us by the culture we grow up in. And I guess we just hope for the best. I just loved having this chat with Jay because his point is that we need to notice and be purposeful about the way we give love and the way we receive love too. We talked a lot about romantic relationships, of course, but also about self-love. And he had some really interesting thoughts about when we're most likely to learn to love ourselves. Can I also just say that Jay had literally, literally just got off a plane from LA and he had more energy than I can normally summon in an entire week. And also not an eye bag in sight. He was so bloody lovely to be around and I hope that you can take on some of his lovely energy as you're listening to this. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Right, I can't wait. Here's the show. Jay Shetty, how lovely to actually see you face to face. I know, I'm so grateful to meet you finally after years of like texting and DMing and just, it's it's so wonderful to be here. And I feel like I know you much better than I actually do because of yes. our general texting <laughs> and messaging over the years. But you're in the UK for a short while. Yes. I'm sure that you've got a list of things that you want to do work-wise and otherwise. What's on the hit list while you're here? Uh, definitely seeing my friends, which I try and do whenever I'm back here. So getting the boys together, hanging out. Uh, with all my best friends that I grew up with. And so we're trying to plan. I was like, tonight, I don't think I'm going to last, but maybe, you know, maybe Friday night and maybe Sunday night. Seeing my mum, uh, really, really important to see her and my sister. Yeah, you must miss your mum so much I being do, in I the do States. Mi- I do miss my mum. She misses me more, naturally. <laughs> I think mums mums miss you more than you miss them and just because they love you with all their heart. Mm. Uh, but, I, but I do miss her and... I think, you know, making her feel like a priority really means a lot to her. And she's she's the best. Everything I have is because of how much she loved me growing up. So mm, that's so wonderful. Yeah. We've got so much to talk about today. The yes. last time we spoke in this context on the Happy Place podcast was in 2020, which feels like about 10 lifetimes ago oh my because gosh, yeah. so much has happened. Yes. And obviously last time you were talking about your book, Think Like a Monk, which we were just having this chat off mic about you being unable to actually travel to talk about that book. It was all done, of course, on Zoom because we were living through the lockdowns at that point. But it's really interesting because after everything that we've collectively been through, it seems like the messaging that you were putting forward in that book is more prevalent today than ever. And because it feels like more people are in pain, more people are suffering, more people are struggling, and they need to really sort of grab hold of those very basic concepts to 
feel some kind of peace, I guess. Are you are you sort of sensing that from the work that you're doing? Yeah, it was really interesting to me. I remember during the pandemic and even after, I was getting calls from so many people that I work with or so many people that my work is involved in. It could be companies, it could be people, it could be individuals. And they were all just saying, oh, Jay, your work's so important now. And I was just like, I've always believed mental health is important. I've always believed that there is no quality of life without good mental health and well-being. And I don't think that that's actually ever changed or will ever change. I think that's a truth that will last the test of time because as a human, you get a mind, you get a body, and you have to take care of it. And so I feel really happy that people are coming to that realization and reflecting. I feel sad that it's coming because of pain and suffering. And I feel, you know, it it, it saddens me that we have to go through so much tragedy and pain to come to a point of realizing actually I have to take care of this. But I know even in my own life, that's what I had to do. Like Mm -hmm. the only time I took my body seriously was when my body gave up on me. And the only reason why I worked really hard on my mind at times was because it was challenging. And so I think we do find self-care in times of discomfort. Yeah, that's really strange, isn't it? That our cultural focus, and I'm sure you felt this in the States as much as we deal with it here, is that you're the bottom of the pile, you put everybody else ahead of your own needs, and like you say, you crash and burn, and then you go, oh, right, how am I going to help myself here? It's a real cultural shift that we need to make to actually be kinder to ourselves. It's quite simple, but and I'm saying it from the point of view that I have not nailed this one <laughs> at all. Yeah, same, same. And I, I always say to people, and I'm saying this to myself now as I'm saying it out loud, which is uh, when things are bad, work hard. And when things are good, work harder. Mm. And no one wants to hear that because when things are good, we just want to enjoy it. We just want to live it. We just want to appreciate it. But we don't realize that when things are tough, that's when you put in the extra hours But when things are really good, a little bit of extra refinement and fine tuning means you can stay there. It means you can keep thriving and keep growing. Otherwise, that complacency is what leads to that crash. And so if times are good for you right now, I really hope you'll invest a bit more in yourself. If times are tough for you right now, then naturally you'll be investing in yourself. Uh, But yeah, just don't. I've seen that in my own life. Like whenever things are good, I'm always trying to plant the seeds for the future. Yeah, I'm so bad at it still. And I know all this stuff. I spent half my life talking about this stuff and I still push myself physically and mentally to a point of discomfort without using any of the brilliant things I know are out there (laughs) to balance myself and to just feel mentally okay. It's like, it's just, but I think you feel like you're going against the grain to do it still. And that's why we've got to keep having these conversations and, and being honest and, you know, talking about the brilliant tools that are out there. Absolutely. And obviously you've got your brilliant new book, Eight Rules of Love, How to Find It, Keep It and Let It Go, which I text you over Christmas time. I, I read it and just absolutely loved it. And the book is dedicated to your mum, who you've already mentioned, your sister and your wife. What have those three women taught you about love respectively? Oh, that's no one's asked me that yet. That's what? such a great yeah, that's such a great question. And that's proof that Fern really read the book. Because that's, I read yeah, every yeah, page. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not good I enough lo- to wing an interview. No, no, no. You've I, seen my nerdy notebook. I lo- your notebook's beautiful, by the way. I that's always amazing. Buy, that's really impressive. This is my self-care. Yeah. A, a beautiful notepad with gold sort of um it's stunning. page lining. Yeah, yes. Like but I, I'm not gonna almost, yeah. come into an interview without reading a book. Ever. <laughs> I love Not good it. enough. It's it's really impressive. But yeah, I just, when I was writing the dedication for this book, it's really easy for me to dedicate every book to my wife because she's taught me so much. And I dedicated the last book to her. So Think Like a Monk, the dedication was uh, to my wife, who's more monk than I'll ever be. And, and that's a very <laughs> true statement. And when I was writing this one, I was just thinking about the people that have taught me to love the most. And definitely my monk teachers are a big part of that. But when I look at it in a daily, everyday, nurturing sense, I feel like my mum loved me so much that despite, when I was growing up, I was bullied for being overweight and for being Indian. I was one of the few Indians in my primary school in the area I grew up in. I was overweight growing up. I would get beaten up plenty of times a week. Um, My mum would have to come in and talk to the teachers and, you know, students and all that kind of stuff. And I just felt like everyone always asked me like, oh, well, didn't that like, you know, how did that affect you? And, you know, what did that do for you? And I just, my overarching memory of childhood is just being loved by my mum. 
And and I still feel that now where, you know, we had a, a messy home situation. We had so many different challenges and conflicts around us. And often I think, oh, well, why don't I feel sad about it? Like I often don't carry a lot of baggage from that time. And I often feel guilty that I don't. And I wonder, like, why don't I? And then I'm like, because my mum just loved the hell out of me, like, constantly. And so I feel like my mum's pure love showed me that if you have love, it can pierce through so much mm. pain. It's not about avoiding pain. It's about having love pierce through anything because there's always going to be chaos. There's always going to be uncertainty. You can't protect your kids or the people you love nope. from pain. It's There's going to be pain in life. But what you can do is love them consistently throughout it, whether I made mistakes, whether I got suspended from school, whether I was good or mischievous and stupid and silly. My, my, And it's not that she just forgave me and was okay with everything. It's just that overall it was like, I'm here to catch you. And, and I know even today that if whatever was to happen, my mum would be like, move in back with me and I'll take care of you every single day. I love your mum. I haven't like, even met her. Yeah, and there's like a very, you know, there's a there's a real comfort as a child to to have that. And so that's what I learned from my mum. Should I still do the, my sister and my wife? I want to oh, hear yeah, all okay. of it. All right, all right. I want to hear the whole Because I took too long, a long time on my mum. <laughs> We've uh, got all the time. My, my sister's the opposite. Where Not the opposite. My sister's different in that... For her, I can do no wrong. And I really love her, like how naive she is with that. Like, I'm just like, you're you're adorable because I'm not perfect and I get things wrong all the time and I make lots of mistakes, even in my relationship with her. My nickname for her is Kid because I feel like I raised her and she's been like my child. And I remember, I don't actually remember this. And this is where it's really interesting looking at memories versus pictures you've seen of yourself. But I have a picture of me holding her when I'm like five years old and she's just born. So there's a little picture of her in my arms. And I feel like that's been our relationship ever since. And she's quite tiny. So it's it still feels that way. But for her, I'm her hero. I can do no wrong. Like, I'm always right. And uh, she helped me plan my proposal. She helped me plan my wedding. Like, she's, she'll just... She's the, she's the best uh, project manager I know. And she'll project manage anything for me. So... It's kind of having that naive, sweet love from her where even though I'm massively flawed, she doesn't see any of it. Mm. Uh, and then my wife's the one which I credit to helping me love actually. Uh, so my mum, I say, thank you for helping me love endlessly. Uh, my sister, thank you for helping me love unconditionally. And my wife is, thank you for helping me love actually. Because my wife's my coach in so many ways she's my guide in so many ways she's helped me change my diet and remove unhealthy patterns she's helped me overcome my own lack of self-worth like I've in our relationship because we met before my external success came I think when it started to come I really wanted her to love me for what I'd achieved and she kept loving me for who I am and with my male ego, I constantly still wanted her to love me for what I'd achieved and she kept loving me for who I am and she wouldn't budge and she wouldn't shift. And her not budging and shifting made me realise maybe I should love myself for who I am mm. and if she didn't love me that way, maybe I would have got carried away or got lost or got confused and loved myself for all the wrong reasons. And so I think with my wife, it's much more real where she'll call me out. She'll, I'll plan a presentation and the night before she'll tell me, that's terrible. You can do much better than that, right? Like she'll she'll be my most honest critic. And I love that because you need someone like that in your life who is not just cheering you on, but yep. is checking you. And I think my wife does it in a beautiful, non-judgmental, non-critical way, but she still has a way of going. She gives me the look. And, <laughs> the, look. and the look the look is enough. And she's got those beautiful eyes. So that look's gonna be like so well, really, you know, everyone's gonna go she... straight through you. <laughs> well no, she's just cute and adorable all the time. But uh but yeah, she she can be she can be a real little bit. You beast. sense the look. Yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, you you sense, sense the look. Yeah, we, we can all we yeah, can yeah, all yeah. experience that yeah. that look and also probably give it as well. Yeah. So that's an amazing strong triangle of love that you've got there. It's really beautiful. And I know obviously, although that sort of set the tone for a lot of how you think about love and deal with love, the book actually focuses on what you learned when you were in an ashram yes. in India, learning about the Vedas and the Hindu scriptures that yeah. you were reading from then. Can you just talk to us a bit about the Vedas? what they are and also what they've taught you about love or how they've allowed you to navigate love. Yeah, so the Vedas are this really big 
group of texts. And Vedas means knowledge or wisdom. And if you looked inside the Vedas, you'd find wisdom on everything from... So, for example, we talk about feng shui in the modern world, right? So there's something called Vasta Veda, which is the Veda or the wisdom of how to design your home. And so there's that text, which is over 5,000 years old. You've got... Uh, the Vedas that are about relationships, which is what I pulled on from the, for this book. You've got Vedas about meditation and yoga. That's where all of these ideas originate from. And then they're disseminated into so many different books and so many different texts that are more available today. The Vedas are so old that the original texts are no longer available. And so you're reading multiple aspects of different pieces. But the reason why I turn to them is I like to find ideas, Fern, that are timely and timeless. Because to me, if something's timely and timeless, it means that it will always be true or it will always have some truth. And there's something about that that really fascinates me. And I love finding that ancient wisdom and then I love finding the modern science. And so the book has a ton of science and ton of research in it that I went and found that is parallel to that ancient wisdom. And then there's a bunch of pop culture and strategy to live it because I love pop culture. I love mainstream culture. And then strategies and steps. I'm all about takeaways. I'm all about practical application. I want people to actually change their lives, not just have good philosophical ideas or complex conversations to sound smart. This is actually about what do I do today, Jay? What do I do tomorrow? And so that's kind of how I approach the whole book. And it's so interesting because as soon as I received my copy of the book and I read the title, I was like, how interesting having the word rules in there because... Personally, mm. I've always experienced love as absolute chaos, sort of discombobulating <clears throat> chaos that can be euphoric <clears throat> to just the extreme, but also quite painful and gritty. And I don't think I've ever been very disciplined around it. And if I th even think back to when I met my husband, the whole thing was sort of urgent and chaotic, and I was completely undisciplined in my approach to all of it, which... Some of it I loved. I loved that like extreme roller coaster of it being so wild and out of control because in my actual life, I think I can be a bit of a control freak. So I liked that sort of untethering and just being completely wild. But then obviously I can see where there were bumps in the road because of that. But I found the rule bit really interesting. Do you think it's possible to still feel that sort of wild abandon but have rules or sort of benchmarks in place that you follow because of what you've learned from these Vedas? Yeah, well, I, I, I thought about the title a lot and it was, it was really hard. It was really challenging because I love what you just said. Like, love is this beautiful balance between chaos and comfort or chaos and care. And I think what I struggled with was that this boundaryless approach to creating and building love wasn't making people fall more in love. All the studies today show that people are feeling more disconnected from their partners, that people are getting divorced more often, that people are less intimate with each other. Like that's where the trends are going. And so obviously what we followed up till now, which is that when you know, you'll know, and you'll find it when you least expect it. And <laughs> all the cliches. All the cliches. Like obviously they don't work because mm. I just look at reality and I look at, well, what's the method we've been following? Okay, uh, random abandon. And then what's the result that we have? Dissatisfaction. That can't yeah. be the model we keep repeating. And I always go back to that Albert Einstein quote of uh, insanity is doing the same thing again and again and again, expecting a different result. And I think that's what we do in love. We date the same person in a different body with a different name. So many people feel that way. Like, yeah. oh God, I keep picking the same person. And it's because we never looked at our method. We never looked at our trauma. We never looked at why it is that we feel attracted to the same toxic person that isn't good for us. And if you don't look at it in that analytical, more tactical way, the problem is you keep making the same mistake yeah. because love is so much based around feelings and emotions that if you don't make it, and this is really interesting. I read a study that talked about how our prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until age 25, which means up until age 25, we're primarily making decisions in love based on feelings and emotions. 
after 25, you're more likely to use reasoning and self-control. Mm. And this was one of the reasons why I was even saying for people who are dating after 25, why we struggle to find the spark. When you were 16, you felt the spark with anyone and everyone. Yeah, like, everyone walked down the street. Yeah, anyone turned you on, you crushed on anyone. Yeah. Like it was easy to kind of like bump into a bunch of people that you felt attracted to or felt some feelings for. As you get older, your self-control and your reasoning kicks in far quicker and you're like well wait a minute we didn't have fun that night or wait a minute we didn't do this Mm, didn't like their shoes yeah (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) something like that and so i i feel like for me rules are meant to be broken but you have to have rules to start with Mm. and so it's not that you won't break these rules and you have to follow them perfectly or anything like that but if you don't have any at all if you have no parameters you're basically just shooting in the dark and that is a recipe for risk, uh, hope, wishing, wanting, waiting. And I don't think anyone out there saying, Jay, I'm happy to just wish, want and wait. I think everyone wants to create, build and grow love. And in order to create, build and grow, it has to be intentional. Uh, it could have been called the eight intentions of love. It could have been called the eight agreements of love. Like I just use the word rules because I think it was this counterintuitive approach to say, well, wait a minute, you've been going about it in this just magical way what if there was method to the magic yeah okay because you've got these four ashrams which translates as sort of classrooms of love right so and do they have to be chronological because i've written down here the four ashrams you've got preparing for love practicing love protecting love and perfecting love is that a chronological sequence that you are moving through and sort of cognitively progressing up this sort of scale. Yeah, I don't think anyone does that naturally. No. And I think that the ashrams and the way the Vedas break it down is a really great system. And you don't have to do them one by one. And it's not like, oh, I finished level one. Now I'm on level two. The point is you're going to do level one, level two, level three, level four, all at the same time. But if you're not aware of the different levels, and I'll break down the language in a really simple way for anyone who's listening and if you haven't got the book yet, The first step of love is connecting to yourself. That is preparing for love. The second step of love is chemistry. Now you feel some attraction, some connection with someone else. That is practicing love. Now the third is when you start moving into compatibility mode. Are we actually compatible? We have some chemistry, but are we compatible? And once we're compatible, the final stage is character. Do we actually understand and love each other's character? Because character is what's going to see it through. Mm. Chemistry starts a relationship. Character gets it there. And I think often what we try and do is we try and stretch chemistry as far as it can go. And so if you don't look at love as these four classrooms, and these classrooms really set it up beautifully because the Vedas almost make the world feel like a school of love. Like imagine you're in the school of love and the point of life is to learn how to love yourself, learn how to love others, and then learn how to love the world. And if that's the journey that we're all on spiritually, chemically, uh, from a humanity society point of view, then I think if you're not conscious of that, you also can end up with the perfect relationship and still feel dissatisfied because you don't realize the next step is, well, I need to go learn how to love the world. And so I find that it's a really easy way to be like, which stage am I at? And I think a lot of people will look at those and go, well, I never connected to love myself. I haven't even done that yet. And so no wonder I'm struggling in a relationship because the Vedas are saying, I have to start there. And if I didn't start there, I'm going to keep getting pushed back to that reminder because it's level one. Yeah. I mean, I think most people listening to this and very much myself included have had a long term struggle with not even self-love, self-acceptance at yeah. times. Just going, I'm, I feel OK being me with my flaws, previous mistakes made, etc. I think it's probably undulating for most people as well. Some days you feel like you don't really care as much. Some days you make peace with yourself and you feel pretty good. And other days you can spiral into absolute self-loathing. Yeah. And it's interesting because when you're talking about that first ashram, you mention loneliness and the fact that obviously there are lots of people out there. They might be in a relationship, but for the ones that don't have a partner and feel extreme loneliness, the answer or the natural conclusion seems to be, I will find a partner and then the loneliness will go. Yeah. But that's not a guarantee. And your remedy to that is to really look at this self-love. It's certainly a subject that I've talked about a lot on this podcast, but I think it's one that we need to keep going back to again and again, almost as a daily reminder, because there's so many people that are struggling with it. 
Is there a way to cultivate self-love? How do we even begin to do such a thing? Yeah, I think for so many of us, we just believe that the day someone decides to say, I love you to us, will be the day that we become lovable. Yeah. And will be the day that we accept that we can be loved. And now that person is the reason you're loved, which means if that person is not in your life anymore, they move on or you break up, you're screwed. Yeah, basically, because now you're going back to square one of I'm not lovable, I don't have any love. And so self-love is a complex process. And I do think that self-love today has sometimes been reduced and minimized to being what I would call self-care practices. And which is like, yeah, get to bed early and take care of yourself. And these are all good things, by the way. I, I do all of these things too. So like, get to bed early, like, make sure you go like, go get a foot massage or whatever it may Heaven. be. Like, yeah, and these are all good things, right? I'm not saying they're bad things at all. But I consider that to be self-care. So self-care is all about comfort. But self-love and self-respect and self-confidence are all about discomfort. And I think that's the part that we're missing today, where you fall more in love with yourself when you do uncomfortable things with yourself. Like what? What might you class as So I'll give you an example. Like, let's say you went on... Let's say someone who's listening absolutely loves painting, pottery, some some sort of hobby that they have, whatever it may be. And you went off and did a course on it or a program on it and a bunch of skills on it. You developed your skills. Now you have this new skill. You have this new hobby. You have this new passion. That's going to make you proud of yourself. It's going to make you confident of yourself. Maybe you're someone who helped a parent who was going through a really bad illness. Maybe you were there by their side. Maybe you supported them every night. Maybe you tended to them. Maybe your parent got through, maybe they didn't. You went through this really tough experience on your own with your family's support, but you know you went through that. And I think people are so much more stronger and powerful and resilient than they even know, but they've never stopped to think about how much hardship they've gone through. I interviewed my mum recently, not on my podcast or not for any content. I literally did it over a dinner because I just felt, I was like, you know... As time goes on, it's so easy with your parents to just talk about whatever. And I thought, you know what? I need to interview my mom and I need to talk to her. And we were were traveling for my sister's uh, 30th birthday and we were having a three-way dinner. And I thought, this is a perfect opportunity. And I was asking my mom everything that I've never asked her before, which is like, well, tell me exactly how you moved to London. Like, you didn't just move to London. Like, you were 16 years old. Like, how did you move? What were you doing before? She literally told me that. So my mom was born and raised in Yemen, which I knew. And I knew she left because Yemen got its independence and she moved back to Britain to keep her British passport. But she told me that when she was studying for her exams in Yemen as a 15-year-old girl, there were Yemeni soldiers on her roof fighting British soldiers and she could hear guns and everything while she's studying for exams. I'm like, Mom, you never told me this in my whole life. I'm 35 years old today. You've never told this to me. And she doesn't see that as anything but normal. She sees it as that's just normal. That was her childhood. And I think so many people who are listening right now, I promise you, you've been through an incredible journey giving birth. You've been through an amazing journey, like taking care of your parents. You've been through a phenomenal journey getting over a breakup. You've done incredible things. And it's time that you sit back and reflect and go, what's the hard stuff I've done? Let me start giving myself some respect rather than thinking someone else giving me that respect is going to fulfill that need. How interesting. How interesting to look for your self-love in the moments of pain. Because I think, again, you have to absolutely go against the grain to really hear the words that you've just said and implement them into life. Because even if we look at how social media works, which is always quite an interesting experiment, is that we still believe that the people who have the most followers, the most likes, the most activity going on online must feel amazing because Mm. they've got millions of people looking at them and supposedly loving them. But like you've just said, you know, if we take the example of two people in a relationship, someone loving you does not equal that inner love for yourself, nor do 10 million people pressing like on a photo. That's, you know, you might get a a small serotonin burst of, oh, everyone likes me. Two minutes later, that's going to go and you're still left with all the same turmoil, inner questioning, pain from the past, whatever it is. So it is actually a much 
easier way to look for self-love because everybody's been through shit. Everybody's experienced pain or adversity. And even if you don't think you've come through it fully, you're here today. So you've done it. So that is a great place to look for self-love. Wow, I love that. Yeah, that's one of my favourite places. I I just think people underestimate themselves because we all see our pain as normal. We're like, oh, no, that's just what I had to go through. Like, oh, that's just my story. Or, you know, everyone I knew had stuff like that going on at home. And it's like, even if they did, the truth is that you're still here. You're standing here. You got through. And you're right. You're not fully healed and you're not fully done the work. None of us have. But there's a part of you that you have to recognize. I can do hard things. I can get through hard times. I have done so much. I think that's one form of self-love. I think the other one is more of what I'd call like the the more internal affirmation approach. And I think it's a challenge too. And, and this is going to sound really challenging to people, but I think we have to do it because we're so quick to criticize ourselves. We're so quick to judge ourselves and we're so quick to compare ourselves. These are three things we do all the time. You wake up in the morning, you criticize yourself in the mirror. Oh, wish it didn't look like that. You get to work and you judge yourself immediately. Like, oh, I'm so stupid. I remember I was at... I was at Starbucks getting a couple of teas and coffees for my team the other day and the lady at the the desk got her, she got the change wrong and she, no, I didn't even notice it. She noticed it herself. She was like, oh, I'm so stupid. And I was like, no, you're not. I was like, you're busy morning. There's like 20 people hanging. I was like, you're fine. You're not, you're not stupid just for getting a um, tiny calculation wrong. With yeah, like we all of, do it. Yeah, we do it, right? So we say these really, and we always say really extreme things like, oh, I'm the worst or you know, I just, I'm, I'm the most messed up of all my friends or whatever it is. And at, I think the problem is sometimes positivity is all about saying the opposite and lying to yourself. Yeah. And I don't agree with that either. Like, I'm not saying wake up in the morning and go, I look like a million bucks. I look like, in the mirror. Yeah, that's, you're the best. Yeah, you're the best. <laughs> like, I don't think that works and it doesn't make sense and it feels really artificial and Ooh. it doesn't work. But I think what's really interesting to me is is the middle path, which is like, I can learn to love myself. I will learn how to work out more. I can eat healthier. I can, whatever it may be for you. And it's giving yourself that confidence and saying, I've done really hard stuff. I can do this. Mm. And if we can think about what it is that we want to do with our body, what we want to do with our mind, what we want to do with our heart. And if we can start with something we do like about those things, if we can start with one thing a day or one thing a week that you're like, I like this about my body. And it could be Forget the aesthetics. It could be that my heart's beating. It could be that this organ works in a healthy way. I mean, when I I speak to all sorts of people and when I see people who have so many challenges with certain organs in their life, certain parts of their body, certain diseases, you just go, wow, like there's such a need to, to really be thoughtful. And then what do you love about your mind? Because we're constantly criticizing our mind. I'm, I'm slow. I don't have a good memory. I, I don't remember stuff. I don't, I'm not focused enough. I'm too distracted. I procrastinate. I overthink. We say this without even thinking about it. And then a heart. Like, what do you like about your heart? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you really appreciate? Is it your grit? Is it your kindness? It's good to notice those things. Yeah. And I don't mean in a, in a cheesy, cliche, flamboyant, arrogant way. I mean in just uh, you're doing the opposite anyway. So why not do the other way? Yeah, and it's shifting your focus onto you know positives, which is never a bad thing. In a, in a like you say, in a more natural way, in a, yeah. in a non-forced way. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com What about another cliche phrase we hear a lot in the context of seeking partners or or wanting to find someone to spend your life with? I heard it certainly in the past when I've been single that you've got to love yourself first before someone else can love you. <laughs> yeah. And I've always thought, do, do I? Because I don't know if I can do that. Yeah, and I yeah. still don't know if that one's true. What are your thoughts on that? I, I don't think it's fully true. I think you have to start the journey of self-love But that journey is going to be made better with the right person. Yeah. So we always talk about this, how the right person doesn't make you fall more in love with them. They make you fall more in love with yourself. But I think the problem is saying you have to have it figured out. 
we're going to spend our whole lives trying to figure it out and then you'll never be in a relationship. But the opposite is also true that a lot of people don't do any of the figuring out and then we meet someone and then we outsource it onto them and say, all right, you're going to be my self-esteem. You're going to be my self-confidence. And as long as you love me, then I'm going to feel good. So I think we, as humans, we, we, our human psychology is wired around either I'm going to do it all myself and it's all up to me or it's all up to you. And actually the truth's in the middle of I need to start the journey. And I feel like that. I started the journey when I lived as a monk to have three years of time to just focus on yourself we didn't have any concept of time in the monastery. Like there's no such thing as by this age, you've got to be this kind of monk. <laughs> by this age, you've got to be this kind of monk. Like in society, it's like by this age, you have to be living this life. By this age, you should be married. Yeah. By this age, you should be kids. You lose your concept of time because you actually are just working inward and inward, there's no time. It's just healing. And then at the same time, we didn't have any mirrors in the monastery. So you, you lose a sense of how you look. You lose a sense of self so you can go inward. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to become monks, and that's definitely not what I'm proposing, but I'm saying that finding time to find yourself is going to help the journey. It's not that you're going to find yourself first fully, and you're going to say, all right, I know exactly who I am. That's just not going to happen. That's a forever job, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's and a think, forever job. I think yeah. a lot of this stuff, in pay, maybe this is a generalisation, but I do think with age, you do know yourself a bit better yes. through experience. You might start to then subsequently like yourself a little bit more or have more acceptance because I could even see that incrementally over the years and there's no one definite moment like at 30 I just felt really great or at 40 yeah. I just then felt like who cares yeah. but certainly like in my 20s when I think back to dating the the person I'd dating might say oh yeah I'm really into like grunge and I'd go oh my god me too and then I liked the same band as them and I would try and like wear similar clothes or whatever it might be whereas now I would never do that it's like this is what I like I know what I like I don't have the energy to pretend otherwise so I do think some of it luckily comes naturally and and again like you said there doesn't have to be there is this societal pressure and it is probably more on women because of our biological clock if you do want to have children but it's pressure that You've got to have a partner. You've got to play by these weird sort of rules that are in place for you to have ticked these things off a box. And I think a lot of people feel those pressures, but there's no guarantee that you'll feel happy after that anyway. You could end up married with kids and deeply unhappy. There is no guarantee. So following this this sort of system, this chronological order of layers that you sort of peel back is no bad thing. And, and another reason is because you say, get to know someone properly. We've got that chemistry bit mm-hmm. where we think, oh my God, and it's all sorts of pheromones and the smell of someone, all these things we're subconsciously picking yeah. up and getting these cues from another person. And, you know, if I again think back to when I met my husband, I had this urgency and this rush, like literally, let's move in together. <laughs> let's just make everything happen now. You know, I'm a very impatient person. But I think I probably did miss a bit of that process of getting to know someone. I had no discipline. And you talk about, in a very sort of minute detail, about the dating process and how you might do that. And so talk to us about... Um, the opposite of what I did, a sensible approach to <laughs> dating and getting to know someone. Well, well, here's the thing that, Fern, even even though you feel that way about, you know, how, how you met your husband, it's not bad because the point is, and this is hopefully reassuring for so many people listening, if you're in a relationship, you can still get to know them at any time, which is obviously yeah. what you've done. And so I do want to point out that even if you are in a relationship and you're like, well, Jay, I, I didn't do that and we've been together for like three years or five years or seven years or whatever, or even three months... You're not, it's not too late. You can still get to know that person. So all of this still applies. It's not, it's not just if you're single. Like you don't have to break up and start all over again <laughs> just to get it right uh, because you, you don't want to throw something good away. And so I would say that the reason why I did this is I looked at the research and the research said you have to spend 40 hours with someone to consider them a casual friend. Wow. And I was like, yeah, that was a lot of time. I thought, wow, I haven't spent 40 hours with a lot of people I consider a friend. Then it said that to consider someone a good friend, you have to spend 100 hours with them. And then it said to consider someone a great friend, you have to spend 200 hours with them, a great friend, a best friend, 200 quality present hours, not just watching a movie or whatever. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, wow, 200 hours. Mm. And the incredible thing is all the research shows that there are so many people today being told within the first month that someone loves them, that someone will say, I love you. And I think the average was men say it within a month and women say it after like three months. 
uh, I love you wow. after, in dating. I was like way quicker than that. You were, yeah, you were like day one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm very you. impatient. I yeah, have to put that yeah. forward again. And that's normal. And, and that's the thing. We all want to be in love so badly that we confess love. We say it. We we do it. And and when it's when it works out, it's wonderful. Yeah. But I think I know so many people who where it hasn't worked out. Oh, and I same think, in my life previously. Absolutely. Exactly. And so... The reason why I'm saying that is not to say don't fall in love or don't say the words or whatever I'm saying. I'm just saying that we have to recognize that what you're saying, as we get to know ourselves better with time, you get to know someone else better with time. And getting to know someone else doesn't happen in an interview format of we meet for a drink. You don't get to know someone. You get to know what they want you to know. Absolutely. You get to know, right? Like you get to know what they, they want. They give you their to, bio. Yeah, they give you their bio. It's like turning up to a job interview and you come and you've read the resume and you've read the job description and now you're just picking all the points and going, yeah, 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 yeah. And so you have to recognize that, all right, until I see them in multiple different scenarios, I can't possibly truly love them. Like, have I seen them stressed? Yeah. Have I seen them tired? Have I seen them mad and angry and upset? Have I seen them irritable? That's what love is. Love is I've seen them in those areas. We know how to navigate each other when we're both feeling not at our best. And we still want to make this work. That's love. Not, oh my gosh, I just love everything you say and I'm infatuated and I'm attracted to everything you say. Everything you say is perfect. And so I think what I want people to do is say, do I want to spend 200 hours getting to know this person as a 360 degree human as opposed to the one picture I see on my dating app or, you know, the one little cute comment they made about something on their profile that that I just thought was was just synergistic to what I'm looking for. And so I just want people to be more mindful only because I don't want your heart broken. That's why. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm not saying this because of any other reason apart from I don't want you to keep falling for people and then being left alone because that's painful. Well, I think it's you know, exactly what you said earlier that you we can probably all see our own sort of cyclical moments of I'm dating the same person, but like you so said, they just have a different name, but it's the <laughs> same characteristics. And potentially that's come from what we've seen modelled by our parents. Yeah. Either the dynamic between your mother and father or whoever your carers were that brought you up. They will have shown you the most about love. And the dynamic between whether it is a heterosexual relationship or not, but the two different partners in the relationship and how they have worked together. How do you think you were impacted growing up by your parents and the love that they modelled? Because I can certainly see how it's impacted me. Yeah, definitely. In the book, I talk about gifts and gaps. So I believe that our parents or the people that loved us, our caregivers, gave us certain gifts. And then they left certain gaps and everyone has gifts and gaps. And this is a great reflection. I have a whole section in the book to help you reflect on your, the way your parents loved you. Now, the interesting thing about the gifts are they were beautiful, but now you expect someone to love you in those same ways. Mm. So they even turn into a bit of a, can be a bit of a curse because now if your parents loved you in this phenomenal way, now you're constantly looking for that. And it's really hard to find that love because a parent's love is, in my opinion, and even in the opinion of parts of the Vedas, a parent's love far supersedes romantic love. Like the closest thing to divine spiritual love is a love that a mother has for her child. And not everyone's expe- uh, received that or not everyone's experienced that. But when you see it, you see the power of that love. And then there's gaps. There's gaps like my parents never turned up to my games or my parents never turned up to my dance rehearsal. My parents never encouraged me. They criticized me. I know so many people who'd say, oh, my mum always told me I was too skinny. I was too fat or I wouldn't look good if I wore that. Right. And these are all the gaps that now we're looking for someone to fill. We're looking for the man or the woman or the person that says, oh, you look great in that. And that's enough for us. Like that's it. They said the one thing that we never heard as a child. And if they say it, then we're all in. Mm. Uh, And so that's how the gifts and gaps. So for me, like I said, the gift my parents gave me was, and I tried to turn all of them into gifts and then not expect them in love, which is which is a whole different story, which I'll talk about. So the gift my mum gave me was, I love you no matter what. And I think that is such a special gift. But I had to realize that when I met my wife, she's not my mum. And, and I can't expect her to love her like my mum. She's going to call me out more. She's going to check me more. She is going to... But that's all to help me become better. Mm. As long as it's done in a non-critical, non-judgmental, non-condescending way, which is how my wife works. Uh, so that was something there from a gift. Now, the gap that my parents left was they didn't really have time to turn up to watching me play rugby for my school A team. They never, you know, had time to really watch me swim uh, for my club. They never really 
came and were a part of like all these achievements where if I won at something or did something, we never celebrated it. And I found that as I grew older, no matter how much I'd win, I'd never celebrate. I'd just be on to the next, I'd move on. If, if my partner didn't want to come and support me as well, it felt normal because that was the gap that my parents left anyway. And I started seeking that validation and approval. I wanted someone to be there to, to cheer me on and be in my corner. Only until I did the self-work of realizing that I had the best thing ever, I look back and I think, I'm so glad my parents weren't involved because I got to become the human I wanted to be. So I never got the pressure of, we want you to do this yeah. or we want you to become this. And I'm really happy about that because I got to choose and decide and become the man I wanted to be. And so now I look at it all through a much more healed perspective, but that's helped me in my relationship. I remember I had someone in my life early on that loved me, but made me feel guilty that I didn't love them the same back. Mm. And I carried that over into my relationship with my wife where I would love her with everything in the early, early years and then I'd make her feel guilty for not loving me back to the same amount, even though she never asked for that. And so I saw how I was repeating these really terrible patterns. And when I saw that, I was like, I can't believe it. Like you literally go, how am I repeating such a horrific pattern? But it's so hardwired and you have to heal that. You have to work through that. So for me, I was like, all right, I don't want to make my wife feel guilty. Why would I make my wife, why would I make the person I love feel guilty? Let me start looking at where those triggers are. Let me start looking at where those patterns are of the gifts and gaps. And let me realize, the gaps that are left, I have to close them. And the gifts that I have, I just have to be grateful for them. Yeah. And now I need to approach this relationship with a new set of rules, with a new set of creation. And I think most people are not creating with their partner. They're carrying something from the past. Without a doubt. And I think that those gaps can be taken into all areas of life. So we need to sort of stop trying to fill those gaps, whether it is with your partner, your friendship circles, work, whatever it is that you're trying to sort of ram into that gap that's been left there. You know, we've got to just, I guess, have the awareness of the patterns that we've picked up and then try and heal from it yeah. rather than just sort of filling it. And I think a lot of this behaviour lends itself to codependency. So for anyone that is unfamiliar with that term and, and how it's applied to a relationship, how would you describe codependency? I think codependency is when you feel like you can't function without the other person. You feel like their absence makes you feel less than. And you feel like if they were to go away or if you were to leave them, then you wouldn't feel like a healthy functioning human being. And so there's a sense of inadequacy and discomfort that comes from not being around them all the time, not hearing from them, not connecting with them. And by the way, a lot of us feel that way. So this isn't a bad thing. I just want to point that out that if you're like, oh, God, Jay, that's me. That's natural. Like we have anxious attachment styles and the attachment styles beautifully explain the different ways we function. So don't judge yourself again, going back to that principle and go, okay, well, that's a condition that I've developed. That's something that I've built up through my past, through my gifts and the gaps, but it can all be healed. It yeah. can all be worked out. There are cures to all of these conditions. And so don't ever look at yourself and go, oh God, I'm broken. I'm done. It's over. You know, please, that's, that's where this where the self-work becomes harder because that shame is what blocks growth. That shame is what stops you from actually healing. Guilt can be useful because it can be like, all right, I need to solve something. But shame is what keeps you stuck oh, it's there. It's the pits. Yeah. It's the pits. And let's look at the, the areas where yeah. um, people argue the most. So money, <laughs> sex, and how to raise children. Yeah. How can we navigate these massive subjects? That I'm sure most couples will go, oh, yeah, I can tick off one or two on the list there. How do we navigate that more peacefully? Yeah, so research shows that we not only argue about those three things, but we argue about the same things for most of our life mm. and most of them remain unresolved. And, <laughs> How depressing. Uh, yeah, very depressing. <laughs> uh, and and what, I, what I learned, which I, which I love this, and this is, this is the saving grace for all of us. The problem is we think it's about money. We think it's about chores. We think it's about sex. We think it's about how do we raise children. And really it's all about how we fight. It's about how we deal with uncomfortable conversations. That's the missing link. So John and Julie Gottman, who founded the Gottman Institute, which has done the most prolific research on relationships, they found that the number one skill, and this is what I love the word skill in relationships. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a skill. The number one thing that kept relationships together 
was not date nights. It was not dinners. It was not vacations or holidays. It was not cruises or walks on the beach. It was learning how to fight, learning how to have disagreements in a healthy way. And what I discovered through my learning of this was that we talk a lot about the love languages from Gary Chapman, which are, which are fantastic and beautiful. But what we don't talk about is fight languages or fight styles. And so we all have a way of dealing with conflict. Mm. And most of us think the way our partner deals with conflict is wrong. Yes. As opposed to just understanding that that's how they're wired. So when me and my wife used to first argue, I'm someone who I write in my book, and I have a quiz for this in my book so you can figure out yours. I'm a venter. Venting means I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it right now. I want to solve it right now. <laughs> that's right? my husband that's me. as well. Yeah, that's me. Now, my <laughs> wife is what I call a hider. She wants to hide in her bedroom. She wants this to switch me. off. She wants to switch off. She doesn't want to hear anything. My husband calls it the shutdown. Yeah, You've exactly. done the shutdown again. I'm like, I, can't, I haven't got any energy. I yeah. can't do it. And that's what my wife likes. My wife, like, I don't want to talk to you for two days. Yeah, right? yeah, like she yeah, needs yeah. that space. Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and then the third one is what I call the exploder, which is like, I need to talk about my emotions and mm. I need to feel heard. Now, again, none of these are good or bad. They are just the way we react. In the beginning of my relationship, when my wife would hide and I would want to vent, I would say to her, you don't care about this relationship as much as I do because I'm standing here willing to talk about it right now and you're not, which means you're walking away from solving the problem. But you and her would be saying, I'm not, I care. I care. That's why I want space. I want to come back and like actually think about it and actually not say anything I don't mean and I need to process it. But that's not the conversation. Yeah. So we think the argument is we don't agree on money. But the problem is we're just upset with the way the person deals with conflict yeah and so now when I realize okay my wife needs two days I need now let's meet in 12 to 24 hours let's actually schedule a time to come back where we both feel we've had the right amount of time meet in the middle and come back and I think that whether it's about money whether it's about children I think a lot of the baggage that we hold comes from the gifts and the gaps where we think what our parents did was right if our parents spent money in a certain way. So some people grew up with parents who saved everything and they saved, they saved, they saved, they saved, they saved. So if they were the partner that spends a little bit or splurges a bit, it triggers them immediately. But we're not aware of that. We just think, no, someone who spends money is bad. Of course, if someone has terrible habits and everything, there, there's, there's, there's certain parameters to this. There's the other side of like, if someone grew up in a family where, I, I remember my parents would always have this thing was like, you never compromise on your health. Uh, you always eat healthy, you sleep healthy. Like if it comes to your health, that's where we spend money, even though we didn't have a lot of money. But that's where my parents always made that. Now, I think that's a really good value. But as you grow up and you get married or you get into a relationship, you have to ask yourself, is that our value? Yeah. It might be mine and my parents' value, but is that our value? And have we chosen our own values in this relationship, of this relationship? And I don't think we have. Most of us are carrying our parents' values into our relationship and forcing our partners to live our parents' values. And that's where we're going wrong with raising kids, with money, with sex, whatever it may be, because we're saying, but this is how my parents did it and it worked out for them, right? Or yeah. someone's coming into it saying, it didn't work out for my parents, but I still have it hidden inside of me because I was so conditioned by yeah. it. Yeah, so I guess it's compromise and some acceptance in the mix as well to have some more peace because, as you said, you know, the the compromise comes, I guess, in the fighting style of going, yeah. right, we're both we're gonna approach this from totally different angles here. Yeah. And that's okay, because this is how I am. Part of it's patterns from parents, part of it's probably just who you are. Yeah. Same with your partner. But then with the actual subject matter, yeah. I guess there is rarely a proper solid solution where you go, ah, oh, and everyone's happy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it there isn't. Like that. There isn't. And that's why I'm saying it's about creating your own rules or creating your own values and saying, okay, we're going to raise kids. Let's talk about the top three things that are important to both of us about how we raise kids. Let's actually have that conversation. Which no one does before they Which we don't have before <laughs> have we have a baby. Kids. Yeah, and I've, you know, this is a really, really tough thing where it's like we make really big decisions in life without ever having the conversations about the consequences of that decision. If you're having a child, you're going to have to raise it. It's going to have to go to school one day and do everything else. And you may want to homeschool your kids and your partner wants them to go to a private school. You may want to... Um, you may want your kids to eat really healthy and your partner's like, no, 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 they should be allowed to eat sweets and everything. Like, you know, there's just all these little things. And I'm not saying you have to discuss every detail before you go and uh, have a baby. But the point is you have to have that conversation yeah. because in the same way as where you want to live, which city you want to live in, what type of home you want to live in, like what, what are your expectations of how you want to spend, save and invest money? I think these are really healthy 
conversations to have. And you may say, oh, they're unsexy or Jay, like there's no right time. And I'm like, they may be unsexy, but I promise you they'll make your relationship successful. Yeah. And so you've got to choose what you want. Like, do you want to have a short term, like feeling like everything's amazing, but then in the long term struggle Mm. or feel like in the short term we had an uncomfortable conversation I think it's really liberating because often and again probably social media is slightly to blame and perhaps also there's movies and TV shows (laughs) that we've seen but we might just go oh those guys are just like they're so perfect (laughs) and everything goes so well for them and they're just naturally sort of deeply in love but I think when we look at everything we've talked about today and we apply it to long-term relationships and long-term love it's hard work it's constant sort of discussions and a resetting of values, it's self-awareness, it's self-care, it's self-love. It's a real bundle of sort of work that leads you to hopefully a really solid foundation for a good relationship. It's not just like you say, some sort of fairy dust and magic and they're in love forever. No. So I think that's liberating because most of us will probably watch films or see on Instagram and go, oh God, gross, look at them all being in love the whole time. But beneath that, is a ton of work that needs yeah. to be done. It's not just going to magically all be okay. Yeah, and and I think that everyone has to decide whether they want to do that work. But I think for those of us who are trying to do the work, you find so much more growth and meaning in it. I yeah. find that I've become a better man, a better person, a better friend, a better partner because of a good relationship. I think actually a relationship keeps you accountable. It makes you grow in a deeper internal way. And yeah, you may say, actually, Jay, I don't want that. And if you ask me if I wanted that when I was 15 or 16, hell no. Like, I didn't want that at 18. Uh, but I think as we grow older, we go, no, I do want that. I do want a meaningful relationship. I do want to feel like I'm growing. And it goes back to what you said earlier, which is which is really beautiful when you said that. You were talking about how, like, you know, there were parts of love that didn't have any rules and it had this chaos. And there's parts you loved, but then parts that caused pain. And I was thinking about the analogy that the Buddha gives in this conversation that I start the book with. And a student comes to the Buddha and says, what's the difference between I like you and I love you? And the Buddha replies, when you like a flower, you simply pluck it. But when you love a flower, you water it every day. If you think about a garden that's unkept or doesn't have any rules, it may have moments of magic, but it can be quite chaotic. If you haven't mowed the lawn, if you haven't trimmed the bushes, if you haven't done all of that kind of stuff, your garden looks like a wreck and a mess. Although there may be days when it kind of looks perfect in the sun and the rain. And that's kind of what a love without rules is, where there's no, whereas when there's certain rules and parameters of like, oh, we cut them, we mow the lawn once a week, we water those flowers, we keep those roses alive, those are going to bloom in, the, um, in summer, those are going to, in the fall, they're going to be different. Like you start getting a sense of appreciation and connection to that. And I find that that daily commitment is what love is all about. Me and my wife literally, Um, I have these four questions and it's not that I ask these in a formulaic way. She probably doesn't even know I do it, but I have these four questions that I have four check-ins that I do with her. Uh, One for every day, one for every week, one for every quarter and one for every year. So every day I'll ask my wife, uh, what's something you did for yourself today? Because I find that she's so busy probably trying to make me happy, trying to make her parents happy, trying to do anything for everyone. And if you have kids, I know you're spending your day trying to make your kids happy. I promise you, if you just ask your partner, what's one thing you did for yourself today? They're going to feel like you're thinking about them and Mm, now they have permission to think about themselves. Once a week, I'll say to my wife, like, what have you got coming up this week that I should be aware of? Like, what have you got coming up? And I'll also tell her, hey, you know what? The next week's going to be really stressful for me. If I'm a bit irritated or if I'm being a bit like agitate just know it's not because of you it's not personal it's just because I've got a lot of stuff on and that's not an excuse but I just want you to know I just want to preempt it like I just want you to be aware and then once every quarter this is the hardest one but it's the best question I think I ask and I'll sit down with my wife and I'll say is this relationship going in the direction you want wow if it's not what are we both willing to do to get it there and if it is what should we keep doing that's going right and that kind of check-in to me is just because I, I just feel like that's what I do in my business. That's what yeah. I do in my team. Yeah. But your wife's your team. Your partner's your team. Like, And you're not doing a check-in. And then once a year, I'll ask her, you know, what are you pursuing this year? And how can I help you? Mm. Like, what are your goals this year? How can I help you? How can I support that goal of yours? And I just find that those four check-ins make life so much simpler rather than waiting four years. And then someone turns around and goes, 
I don't love you anymore. Yeah. I don't want to, I'd rather hear it in the next three months than, yeah. than hear it three years later or three decades later. Because It's oh, beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. And again, it's, it's sensible and I just really need to hear all of it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's so brilliant. And as I said, it's, it's such a gorgeous book that I Thank loved you. reading and it's a brilliant subject matter that we thank could you. talk about endlessly yes. <laughs> but thank you so much for today oh, thank you, I can't believe that you literally just stepped off a flight <laughs> from Los Angeles because you couldn't be any more vibrant and sprightly if you tried <laughs> oh, Jay it's, it's, it's been an absolute joy thank no you, you bring it out of me I have to say your, your <laughs> audience is so fortunate because you know the questions you asked I've been doing interviews obviously for this book a lot recently I always feel like if I've created something that I'm really proud of I want to share it with the world and so I'm I'm really working on sharing it with everyone but to have a unique conversation with you after I've done so many interviews just credit to you for just this has been such an exciting conversation for me because me too. you've asked me questions I haven't been asked for the last I'm couple so of weeks and, me that's, and, my nerdy that reco- yeah, and that's amazing like and so everyone who's listening to fern like you've been spoiled <laughs> this is amazing and uh i'm so grateful to you i was just vibing off your energy your team's oh, energy and Jay, uh, so grateful you. to meet you today and excited to continue our friendship and Without have you on doubt. on purpose too i'm really yes. excited to have you on oh thank you jay yeah, thank you so much thank you Looking for self-love in moments of pain, I found that very interesting. That's definitely kept me thinking in the last couple of weeks since I had that chat. Jay, the biggest, biggest thanks so much for your time and your energy, especially given that you were probably very ready to crash and burn in a hotel room after that very long flight. Jay's book, Eight Rules of Love, How to Find It, Keep It and Let It Go is out now. Now, how are you going to look inwards and show yourself some love? Come and share your thoughts on Instagram. We're at Happy Place Official. And make sure you're following the Happy Place podcast so you're always notified when new episodes are available. Huge thanks to Jay, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you. I really do love you. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com